On the very first episode of Gassy Talks Tintin, before there was Captain Haddock, Thompson and Thompson, and Professor Calculus, there was a young Belgian cartoonist, a charismatic Catholic priest, oh yes, and the spectre of communism haunting Europe. This is Gatsy Talks Tintin in the land of the Soviets. <laughs> Tintin in the Land of the Soviets introduces us to the boy reporter Tintin and his faithful terrier Snowy, who were tasked by Le Petit Vetiem to travel to Soviet Russia and report on how things are going there. His journey starts auspiciously, narrowly surviving an assassination attempt from a Soviet hitman and being wrongly accused and arrested by the German police. Tintin manages to escape and dutifully continues his assignment. Keep that in mind because that will establish a pattern for the rest of this story. Tintin is targeted by the Soviet secret police instantly upon his arrival, who presumably don't want him to report on just how bad things are in communist Russia, but manages to outmaneuver them each time with quick thinking, dumb luck, and Snowy's invaluable assistance. Amidst the long-running game of cat and mouse, Tintin discovers the truth about the secret Soviet state. The communists rule with intimidation and fear, duping the outside world into believing they are prosperous, while their economic mismanagement and corruption have left them on the brink of famine. Tintin escapes back to Germany, thwarting a communist plot to blow up the capitals of Europe with dynamite in the process, and returns to a rapturous reception in Brussels. The Land of the Soviets is unique among the adventures of Tintin for more than simply serving as the character's introduction. The series would always be influenced by contemporary events and feature socio-political commentary from Hergé, but it would never again be as politically charged as it is in the Land of the Soviets, with the scathing picture Hergé paints of Soviet Russia serving as an undisguised piece of anti-Marxist propaganda. This was done by design. The story was serialized in Le Petit Vintième, which was the children's supplement of Le Vintième Siècle, a staunchly Catholic and conservative newspaper that stood in stark opposition to socialism, atheism, and progressivism, all things that were encapsulated in the popular imagination by the Soviet Union. The paper's editor, a priest named Norbert Valez, tasked Hergé with writing a story that exposed the chaos and violence that left-wing ideology inevitably brings. Hergé's own politics continue to be discussed at length even today, but it's safe to say that, at least in this early stage of his career, he was as committed an anti-Marxist as one could expect from his middle-class Catholic upbringing, even if he never veered into the same explicitly fascist and anti-Semitic rhetoric as his editor did. Reading today, the political aspects of the story make Land of the Soviets more interesting, but it isn't enough to save the story from its muddling, meandering, repetitious plot. There is no overarching storyline besides the secret police chasing Tintin, and the constant capture and escapes, while entertaining and funny at moments, quickly become tiresome. It's easy to see that this was meant to be serialized, and its parts read more like a series of visual gags rather than one continuous plot. It also lacks the vivid realism that Hergé would prioritize later in the series. The Russian landscapes are bland and nondescript, with no sense of scope or scale, and it's easy to see that the author had never once visited the place he was depicting. Science also takes a backseat for comedic effect, in order to keep Tintin and the plot moving. Tintin constructs an automobile out of junk he finds in a scrap heap. He disassembles the engine of another car and then fixes it all by throwing the pieces under the hood and he fixes a plane by cutting down a tree and carving a propeller with a pocket knife. 
It has a childlike charm on its own, but it's leagues away from Professor Calculus explaining nuclear rockets to the reader 20 years later. Tintin himself appears more childlike as well, a bit more cheeky, a bit quicker to violence, and not quite as patient as he would become. Snowy, besides looking way too anthropomorphic for my liking, is also more cynical and intelligent here than he would be at the end of the series, though his change is more of a gradual one. As Hergé would refine his artistic style, he would go back to refine and recolour his earlier stories, making edits when necessary. As such, the Tintin stories that originally appeared in black and white were made available in complete colour, and with Hergé's perfected linga clara or clear line style of art. That is, except for Land of the Soviets. Hergé admitted his first Tintin story he was learning as he created, and he had no desire to make it available for mass market release. The volume, only available in extremely limited editions, was highly sought after by Tintin fans, until Hergé finally relented and made it available to the public in 1973, though still in its original black and white, unrefined form. Overall, the book is probably more enjoyable to hardcore fans of the series than it would be for the, any child looking for the kind of vibrant adventure the series would become later famous for. The silly, consequence-free tone of the album sharply contrasts with its ham-fisted political purpose, but it is still nice to look back and see how far both the artwork and the storytelling have progressed. I was trying to think about how... Mm, that is squeaky. I was trying to think about how Hergé would go about tempting this same story if he tried it later on in his career. And of course, he wouldn't, because there is no story in Land of the Soviets. It is Tintin going around exploring how bad communism is, and that is it. Which is, of course, what it was designed for. That's the whole impetus behind this story being made. But I think I think I understand the reasoning behind Hergé never going and, and recolouring it and revising it. And I think that's telling, because even with uh, Tintin the Congo and Tintin America, which I think suffer from similar narrative problems, Hergé went back and, and recolored them and revised them in their entirety. It was a huge undertaking, but he obviously thought they were worth salvaging. And, you know, to his credit, he never saw the value in this. And honestly, if you were going to show someone this and be like, this is Tintin, they would be like, why are you going to make a podcast about that? That is not very good. But I think it's it's charming in its flaws. I like, the, I like it in spite of its flaws, uh, not because of its flaws. Or is it the other way around? Regardless, it's great for Tintin collectors who want to see how far the character has come and how far the art style has come. But the, it's, it's really, it's not for, for casual readers. Even, you know, even younger readers, it doesn't have the same sort of vivid um, clarity of his later works that just make them visually appealing in the very least. So it's definitely an oddity in that case. Having said that, it was a huge success. Off the bat, right away, you know, we look back and say, look how far Tintin's come, but he was a smash hit. The character was was a huge success for um, Le, Le Petit Ventium when it first came out, and they actually organized a, a publicity stunt and had someone dress up as Tintin when he returned from the Soviet Union. Um, and I've got some pictures of it on my website. It's amazing how many people turned out to see this this reporter. So it was a smash hit straight away and uh, that, that momentum would carry Hergé into his uh, second story, Tintin in the Congo, which we will discuss next time. 
I hope you've enjoyed this first episode of Gatsy Talks Tin Tin. You know, there's a bit of growing pains at the start. There was a thumping noise in, throughout the, that, that podcast that you may have noticed, and I believe me, you're not going insane. It was definitely there. But, uh, but if you're interested, I'd love for you to stick with me as we go through all of the chronological Tin Tin stories. I'd like to branch out a bit more as well. I didn't get into, in this episode, I didn't get very far into Hergé's early life, his early career, and the inspiration behind the actual Tintin character. I think that's a video or a podcast all in itself. Well, essentially, I want this podcast to be just everything Tintin and everything Hergé as well. So if that sounds like something you'd like to uh, be a part of, I would love for you to subscribe on your podcast app of choice or on Spotify. doesn't matter. That's all the same to me. And you can follow me on tintin.podcast on Instagram. I like to post a lot of like uh, behind the scenes things, lots of artifacts from the Urge archives, uh, lots of sort of, you know, little interesting bits of trivia about the series. And if you're interested in more of that stuff, you can actually check out the website, which is www.lateritur.com slash Tintin and that's L-A-T-T-E-R-A-T-U-R-E dot com slash Tintin and we've got a lot more of those artifacts on there a lot more of the behind the scenes stuff if, if, if you're interested if you want to go a bit deeper into the sources that inspired Tintin and more of those bits of trivia and there's also some other podcasts in there you might be interested in or not it's fine it's up to you you're your own person you can decide what's worth your time but thank you for sticking with me for this very uh, first episode of Gatsy Talks Tintin. Um, I'm still trying to work out a sign-off, but for now we're going to go with thank you for listening, Tintin Heads, and I hope to see you next time.